Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, uh, for those of you happening across our podcast or broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And that's where you come in. It's your questions on the Bible that make up the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So if uh, maybe there's a verse or two in the Bible that's eluded your understanding, you'd like to get some clarification on that. Maybe a uh, spiritual issue, a current controversy has uh, created more uh, heat than light, even among your own circle of Christian friends. We'd love to provide some scriptural clarity. Maybe you'd like to talk about the events of the day, even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. And of course, tough questions. Maybe you've been asked a tough question. Maybe you would like to uh, be more equipped to be able to uh, answer tough questions. Uh, Give us uh, a holler and we will be more than happy to tackle those issues with you on the broadcast. Uh, Joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, how can people get questions to us? Well, if you want to join us on our social media platform, you can do so through Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Our YouTube page is a reason for hope, but since we do not control when or why we are taken down from said platforms, we want to be ahead. Yeah, of never the, know. Yeah, yeah, we want to be ahead of the curve and also be able to, I guess, uh, produce this broadcast in a way where we remain the final metric as to whether or not what we're saying is acceptable for human <laughs> ears. If you want to join us in a way where we won't be taken down without warning, you can also join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. Note as well, it'll be Pacific Standard Time in the U.S. if you are not on Daylight Savings Time. We're in Arizona. We don't buy that sort of thing. Yeah. We don't need an well, extra hour of daytime. In the summer especially. They tried that once and people rioted. Yeah, and for, <laughs> for good reason, but... With that all being said, if you want to send us your questions, just like on our YouTube and Facebook pages, on the right-hand side of the screen, you can send us your questions by typing them in. As long as they are sincere about the Bible and in the form of a question, that is what we are setting ourselves aside to do for the next hour. So feel free to take advantage of that. And if you would like to join us, maybe you're listening to us on one of our radio affiliates, uh, later hours off the live streaming platform, and maybe not even necessarily through social media, but the internet nonetheless, questions, F-O-R-Hope at gmail.com is our email address. We'll have the proper spelling for that on our website as well as our social media platforms. It'll be on the bottom of the screen as well as a countdown clock to see just how much longer this nightmare will continue. If you want to make this a dream, however, feel free to send in your questions. As long as it is about the Bible, sincere in the form of a question, biblical prophecy, relevance to your life today, or clarification on difficult passages, maybe objections to the faith. Say you are not a Christian but still want to know about the ins and outs of what we tend to believe as those who adhere to Christian belief, feel free to send your question to us as long as you're respectful, sincere, and asking a question rather than an accusation. We'll be happy to have you on the broadcast. With all that being said, we want to make sure that God speaks more than we do. We don't have anything to offer, but we hope that the Spirit will equip us 
for every good work, and that includes sharing his word. So why don't we take a moment to pray and see that he does just that? Yeah, let's do that. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to honor you during this time. We pray that you would be honored. We pray that your word would go forth in clarity, in simplicity. Lord, I pray you would give uh, Sean and I the wisdom, not just to answer maybe the presenting questions, but even as your spirit leads, get through to the underlying questions, the questions of the heart that can lead us into a deeper and fuller relationship with you than we've ever had before. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to serve you and draw close to you. We pray, Lord, that uh, people would walk away from this time edified, built up in their knowledge of you, exhorted, able to apply uh, the truths that they receive on the broadcast today in their personal lives, and comforted, uh, knowing that whatever you call us to do, Lord, you supply all the power through the Holy Spirit to accomplish. We look forward to uh, what you're going to do and growing in your grace and knowledge today. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, we, whenever it comes to matters of biblical prophecy, want to keep our eyes first and foremost on Israel. And events have been transpiring there that we want to keep those listening informed about, or at least informed in so far as we actually have information to share rather than speculation. But when it comes to what's going on in Israel, there was some violence. What is that all about? And does it point us to Scripture? Well, we do have quite a bit of um, items. Uh, I guess we would characterize them as prophecy updates uh, to uh, share with you all on the broadcast today. And uh, one of them, obviously, uh, applies to uh, what's going on in Israel. If you're not familiar uh, with uh, this particular event uh, earlier today, uh, there was a firefight that took place between uh, Israeli Defense Forces and Palestinian terrorists in the city of Jenin in Israel. Jenin, I guess it would be the best way to pronounce it. Uh, and uh, Jenin is not uh, too far, I guess, uh, from uh, the area uh, around uh, Bethlehem. But in the midst of uh, this uh, exchange of gunfire that was taking place, a journalist uh, who is uh, very well respected from uh, Al Jazeera uh, was uh, struck uh, by a bullet in the head. Uh, her name is Abu Akle, uh, and uh, she died uh, after being attended to by medics at the scene. Now, the big hubbub that has uh, emerged from all of this is that another uh, journalist uh, that was uh, working for a pro-Palestinian newspaper called Al-Quds, which is the Muslim name for Jerusalem, kind of rallies around their claim to retake Jerusalem as Muslims, uh, claimed that uh, they were uh, fired upon uh, in an unprovoked way by uh, Israeli uh, troops. And uh, this uh, fellow was shot in the back. His name is Ali Samodi. Uh, and uh, he claimed that uh, it was unprovoked. There was no violence going on. Uh, the IDF troops simply opened fire, shot him in the back, and then, to quote him, they killed her in cold blood. One bullet hit me, the second hit Shireen. That is her first name. So, uh, again, uh, Samudi dismissed claims by the IDF that there were gunmen in the area during the instance. There were no resistance fighters, he said. We were alone in the area. Well, this is where things get predictably murky in the area around the Middle East. Uh, obviously, the IDF has a very different take on all of this and some video to support the fact that IDF forces had been engaged uh, by Palestinian terrorists uh, during that particular time. Uh, the, the real kicker in all of this is that uh, obviously when someone 
puts forth a story that the Israeli Defense Forces have uh, killed a journalist of all things, a journalist uh, for Al Jazeera, no less. Uh, suddenly, international condemnation of Israel has been forthcoming. Uh, individuals are making declarations that uh, this is why Israel should be boycotted and divested and sanctioned and so forth, and, and that the Jewish state is a um, bunch of oppressors. Well, the the problem with all of this is that there are two uh, sides to each one of these conflicts. Israeli officials, this is according to the Jerusalem Post, rejected the idea that an IDF bullet uh, killed Abu al-Akleh uh, with the IDF chief of staff, Lieutenant General Aviv Kohavi, vowing to, vowing to fully investigate her death using all tools at our disposal in order to arrive at the truth. Expressing sorrow over death, Kohavi said that during the arrest raid in Jenin, Troops encountered dozens of armed Palestinian militants who fired extensively at our forces, firing wildly and indiscriminately in every direction. Unlike the Palestinians, IDF troops carried out professional and selective firing. Now, Israel has backtracked from earlier statements saying that it was definitive that Abu Akleh was hit by Palestinian bullets. Uh, Kohavi said at this stage, it's not possible to determine from which bullet she was hit, and we are sorry for her death. The reason that it is impossible at this time to determine which bullet killed this journalist is because the Palestinian Authority has absolutely refused to cooperate with Israeli requests to do a joint autopsy, including an examination of the round that killed this journalist. They've said they're not going to cooperate uh, in any way. They said they've already proven their case and, uh, and made their point. So, you know, the, the problem is uh, the, this reporter was very close to troops and Palestinian militants and was hit. Uh, Israel, uh, Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz uh, said the preliminary findings for the investigation conducted by the IDF indicate that no gunfire was directed at the journalist, but the investigation is ongoing. Gantz went on to say we will communicate our findings in a clear and transparent manner to our American friends as well as to the Palestinian Authority. Well, as uh, you can probably imagine, uh, the way that these particular dust-ups are manipulated for the cause of propaganda in that region is uh, standard operating procedure. As uh, we know from the exchanges, say, between uh, IDF forces and uh, the Hamas terrorists in Gaza, uh, the Gazans uh, will uh, set up their rocket launchers on tops of hospitals and uh, playgrounds and so forth, even though Israel... Uh, gives a uh, very uh, liberal amount of time and warning that these uh, rocket launchers and such are going to be taken out. Uh, when they are taken out, then it provides an opportunity to send uh, heart-rending pictures of destroyed playgrounds and hospitals with bombshells in them and so forth. Uh, one uh, particularly egregious example of this is that uh, during the last exchange between Gaza and Israel, a uh, photo was shown of a toddler who had been supposedly killed by an Israeli attack. Well, some research was done, and it was the same toddler that was shown in a picture taken three years ago who was killed in an attack that had taken place in Lebanon, not in Gaza. So uh, the, the bottom line is you really got to keep your powder dry before you jump to conclusions. Of course, uh, in uh, 
journalism circles, uh, you know the old adage, if it, le- if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, people are jumping to conclusions. If jumping to conclusions was an Olympic sport, I think there'd be some gold medals handed out for all of this. But it really shouldn't surprise us as believers in Christ, uh, because uh, the, the bottom line that we know from biblical prophecy is that although Israel will receive a respite from being the focus of ire and condemnation in the world, uh, the general tide of things in this world, in an enemy-occupied world, is going to be going against Israel. If you want to find out the spiritual nature of uh, what's behind all of that attack, I'd highly encourage you to go to our website at calvarychristianfellowship.com and uh, give a listen to our verse-by-verse study through Revelation chapter 12, where we uh, reveal uh, from the Scripture the spiritual underpinnings of the hatred of the Jews that has gone on down through time. It really does have spiritual roots. So if you want to explore that, you certainly can. But uh, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, we are told that this is going to be the general trend of things regarding Israel's place within the world. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. So we know long term where the trend of things is going. Uh, Israel is going to continue to catch the ire of this world because Satan who hates Israel because through Israel, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, who is ultimately going to defeat him when he returns, has come into the world. He knows he can't take Jesus. He can't take God on uh, in a direct conflict. And so he goes after those whom he loves. So Revelation 12 goes into quite a bit of detail about that. So be praying, uh, of course, for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, Again, we certainly don't rejoice when anyone loses their life in a conflict like this. But uh, that the truth will, will, will come out. And if uh, a, a stray IDF bullet has taken the life of this journalist, uh, Israel, I believe, will demonstrate its bona fides to the world by uh, tracking down those responsible for this uh, particular incident and uh, punishing them to the fullest extent of the law. Uh, I believe that if a Palestinian ends up being the one who shot, uh, you're going to see a very different response going on there. So that's the uh, the first one on uh, our agenda. Another uh, interesting uh, story uh, breaking today. Guess what, Sean? It's time for another blood moon, believe it or not. Uh, in fact, this blood moon is uh, kind of the mother of all blood moons because it's called the Superflower Corn Planting Milk Blood Moon. Uh, and it's going to happen uh, this coming Sunday night. If you uh, go out on Sunday night, probably about 9 o'clock, you will be able to see uh, this uh, particular uh, uh, lunar eclipse, we call it. A faint reddish glow uh, is going to take over uh, the moon, uh, giving it that sort of semi-blood red or rusty kind of color. Uh, and uh, this happens when, uh, again, the uh, shadow of the Earth gets between the sun and the moon. It's sort of the opposite of a uh, solar eclipse, if you will. It's called a supermoon because it appears slightly larger and brighter than usual because it's at the closest point to Earth in its orbits known as its perigee. So uh, really uh, a very interesting thing to be able to watch. Now, uh, the controversy always comes up about blood moons. 
a few years back, John Hagee, who is a noted uh, Bible prophecy teacher, uh, really got on uh, this bandwagon that uh, that blood moons, that is lunar eclipses, that coincide with Jewish holidays were a sign of the times that the Bible had prophesied about. Uh, for instance, uh, the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 saying that the prophet Joel spoke about the uh, sun turning to sackcloth and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so they would say this, uh, the moon turning to blood was a reference to the blood moons. Uh, they would point out that there are a, uh, a number of very interesting cycles of blood moons that tend to coincide with Jewish holidays called tetrads. That is four blood moons that coincide with four Jewish holidays at a particular calendar year. A case was attempted to be made that these uh, tetrads of blood moons always accompany uh, something very significant prophetically. Well, if you take a look uh, back at the time that these seeming tetrads of blood moons took place uh, in 162 through 163 uh, AD, uh, one took place uh, 795 through 796. That's when uh, Charlemagne defeated Islam. They said that was significant. Uh, in 842 through 843, uh, there was a series of blood moons uh, leading up to the time that the Muslims sacked Rome, and the Romans ended up taking it back. Uh, you know, we could go on in 1493 through 1494. The Spanish Inquisition got going in 1492, so I'm not sure how that coincides. In 1949 through 1950, they made a big deal about this one, uh, the uh, Israeli uh, war. Armistice was uh, reached in uh, 1949 after the first war of extermination against the Jews took place. In 1967 through 68, another tetrad took place, but only one of these blood moons happened before Jerusalem was captured. Three happened afterwards. But uh, I think the, the one that really puts the kibosh on uh, the idea that these blood moons are significant concerning what happens in history is that the last one, the one that got all the hype, happened in 2014 through 2015, and absolutely nothing happened of prophetic significance during that particular tetrad. So, you know, you really don't have to do your history to be able to figure out that this thing is a bit of a reach. When uh, the prophet Joel spoke about the moon turning to blood and the sun to sackcloth, or the great and terrible day of the Lord, uh, we have recorded in scripture, a fulfillment of this particular prediction that I think will tell you uh, exactly what we need to be looking for when this prophecy was made. And it's not something that's a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse. It's found in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12. There we read, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its late figs when shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, mighty men, every slave and free man, hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand." Um, I've watched lunar eclipses before. We watched one not too long ago. And it's very interesting to watch. I mean, it's something that is a little bit unusual. 
But it doesn't strike fear into our hearts, does it? A meteor shower would. Yeah, I mean, uh, not just a meteor shower like one of the ones you see regularly scheduled where you see the streaks going across the sky. But if we are being bombarded by objects from outer space so that the geography is being changed and that everybody is hiding in the rocks and the mountains to get out of its way, well, I'd say that's a significantly more impressive prediction fulfilled than uh, any kind of blood moon hysteria that goes on. The reason we mention this to you is I think there's a lot of really well-meaning people who are looking for the signs of the times, and I think it's great to be looking for the signs of the Lord's return. Uh, Jesus himself said that we are to be watchful. That is his command to us because his return for us could happen at any time. Uh, I don't believe there is any prophecy of Scripture that needs to be fulfilled before the event that we call the rapture could take place. Uh, you know, that's why Jesus describes it as being like a thief in the night and uh, an unanticipatable event. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's good for us to know we're in the ballpark. I mean, Israel's back in the land. I think that is the sign of the times par excellence uh, as far as us uh, being mindful of the fact that the Lord could come at any moment. But if the Lord desires, he can delay his coming another 200 years. We're just not told. We're just told to be ready so when someone i think with good intentions but maybe not a lot of knowledge uh sometimes good and not so good intentions because they want to sell books or get you to do clicks on their website uh brings this kind of stuff up uh, the wise and discerning person is going to go okay when the bible speaks of the moon turning to blood where does it speak about this joel speaks about this in joel chapter 2 Acts chapter 2, Peter speaks about this, and in Revelation chapter 6. And when we put these scriptures together, we can come up with a pretty good uh, way to tune our discernometer when this stuff um, gets going. So you might hear some people getting excited about uh, this super moon uh, that is coming up uh, this Sunday. Uh, There's no prophetic significance to it. Uh, The heavens do declare the glory of God, and the, the firmament shows forth his handiwork. You can go out and Thank the Lord for his awesome deeds and the, the show that he puts on. You don't even have to wait for a supermoon for that. You can just go out and look at the stars. But uh, don't get carried away with this sort of thing. We wanted to make you aware of that. Now, closest to home, a very interesting vote went down in the U.S. Senate today. Uh, in the U.S. Senate, uh, uh, Democratic leader Charles Schumer put forth what was called the Women's Health Defense Act. Uh, and uh, put it up for a vote this afternoon. Uh, the uh, vote was, uh, was, was put forward as a response to the leaking of uh, an uh, opinion from the Supreme Court that looks for all the world like they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, all that means is that uh, the right to decide abortion policy is not going to be something the federal government can control across all states, each individual state will have the opportunity through its elected legislatures to decide what their policy on abortion is going to be. The decision rightly, I believe, uh, in a legal sense, points out that there is no mention of abortion, either pro or con, in the U.S. Constitution. And uh, to make this up because it's a, a penumbra of other uh, rights that uh, the Constitution does enumerate, I think was really 
bad uh, law at, at best and uh, probably needed to be uh, done away with a long time before this. Now, the hype out there, obviously, if you hear anything about what's going on with this, is that, oh, my gosh, uh, you know, the, these evil pro-lifers are going to take away uh, everyone's right to abortion. And that's what the Supreme Court That's not what the Supreme Court is doing. All they are doing is rightly returning the right to regulate the practice of abortion to each individual state. I don't know why anybody would be freaked out over that unless, of course, you are on the pro-abortion side of things and you start to realize that since 1973, when Roe v. Wade became the law of the land, uh, there's been an awful lot of scientific advancement that's gone on. There's been the invention of something called a sonogram that allows us to be able to see babies in utero developing. No longer could you make the argument that we're just talking with a clump of cells or a tissue blob. Uh, Scientifically, that was just uh, removed, although you will still hear people trying to make that same argument. Uh, We have told you before that uh, there are a number of reasons why we as believers in Christ should stand for a decidedly pro-life position. Uh, among them, uh, what the scripture has to say about when life begins. In Psalm 139 and verse 10, King David said, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in the days which were ordained for me when there was not yet one of them. In other words, from the moment we were a fertilized egg, uh, we were a living being and precious in the sight of God. Scripturally, uh, we see uh, in an interaction between uh, the mothers of uh, Jesus and John the Baptist, another interesting insight, don't we? Yeah, working information that would allow us as Christians to conclude definitively that in a first trimester status, they were able to be identified not as a potential Lord, but as my Lord. And, of course, that the reaction of a second trimester baby was capable of a spiritual experience in the presence of said actual baby, even though it was within three months of conception. Leaping for joy. Uh, is the term used, and it's in Luke chapter 1. You can look it up yourself. So uh, scripturally, the Savior himself illustrates the fact that life begins at conception. Uh, And, you know, again, we could go on and say that science verifies all of this. And we say, oh, you know, nobody knows when life begins. Well, actually, yes, we do. At the moment of conception, your life began. How do we know that? Because as soon as your mother's egg cell united with your father's sperm cell, Uh, you had a fertilized egg, a zygote, if you will. That, according to any scientist, is not an inanimate object. It is a being. It is a being with 46 chromosomes, the same genetic endowment you and I have today. The only difference between you, me, and that fertilized egg is time and nurture. And so, you know, it leads us to the other point that uh, we need to bring up with those who might take the opposite position uh, what does common sense say? When did your life begin? Your life began at conception. So uh, the, the fact that uh, these things are, you know, really being uh, hammered out and uh, being put in the public eye is borne out by the fact that most people that are interviewed are not pro-abortion. Uh, they feel like uh, there needs to be some regulation on it at the very least. Well, when this particular uh, draft of a Supreme Court opinion signaling that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned, uh, Chuck Schumer uh, of New York jumped into action and called for the passage of a bill that was supposedly to codify 
Roe versus Wade in federal law. And uh, this uh, particular bill uh, had to receive at least 60 votes in the Senate. Why? Uh, Not just a majority, but 60 votes because it would have to be able to survive a filibuster. And a filibuster in the Senate can only be ended by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. So you have to have at least 60 senators voting for this bill in order for it to pass on, and then the House would have its way with it. Well, uh, the vote went down, and uh, the me- the measure itself failed 49 to 51. 51 votes against, 49 votes for. The crucial vote uh, was uh, uh, Joe Manchin of uh, West Virginia, He opposed the Women's Health Protection Act outright. He said, quote, make no mistake, it's not Roe v. Wade codification. It's an expansion. It wipes 500 state laws off the books. It expands uh, abortion. Uh, Very interesting summary of what this bill would have done on the townhall.com website. It says, in summary, the Democratic bill would make elective abortions legal across the entire country for all nine months of pregnancy, with a mental health loophole eliminating any real limitations. It would eliminate virtually all existing state-level restrictions, including lopsidedly popular ones. It would gut conscience protections for health workers who don't want to participate in abortions. You either have to participate in abortions or lose your job. It would allow non-doctors to facilitate abortions and would likely force taxpayers to finance all of it. Short of endorsing post-birth infanticide or instituting, say, communist China-style compulsory abortions, it's hard to imagine a more extreme piece of legislation on this issue. Dressing this up as codifying Roe is astoundingly dishonest, the townhall.com website said. Yet it's mindlessly, or perhaps not so mindlessly, repeated by journalists ad ad nauseum. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, the Women's Health Protection Act was so radical that not even all Democrats supported this measure, nor did liberal Republicans like Susan Collins of uh, Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Uh, Our two Arizona senators, uh, Mark Kelly and Kirsten Sienema, both voted in favor of this particular bill, and you might want to file that away uh, in your mind when the next election comes along. As we say, we don't take Uh, political positions on this particular program, but we do believe in being issue voters. And the fate of the pre-born in this country is not one that we can budge on from a biblical or scriptural point of view. So uh, again, uh, really interesting kind of Hail Mary, if you want to use that term, vote that went on in the Senate about all of this. I'm not sure exactly what it accomplished aside from bringing out into the open Uh, the radical positions that uh, some individuals, uh, like our two senators, like to portray themselves as holding on this crucial issue. Uh, The other thing that we wanted to mention to you was this. uh, In the aftermath of uh, of, uh, the uh, leaking of this uh, Supreme Court potential opinion coming out here, uh, we've also seen uh, protests uh, taking place outside of Supreme Court justices' homes, which, by the way, is a felony. Uh, to try to influence a vote by that kind of demonstration is not something that is allowed under federal law. It's just very interesting to me that nothing seems to be done about all of this. And uh, the Wisconsin Family Action Center, which is a, uh, a uh, crisis pregnancy center, provides uh, 
crisis pregnancy counseling and services for uh, women that are trying to make up their mind whether to keep their baby or not. Or the very high price of what? Nothing. Ah. Yeah. Uh, The Wisconsin Family Action Center was attacked uh, and uh, two firebombs were thrown inside of it. Graffiti was written all out of it. If abortion isn't safe, neither are you was one of the charming slogans that was in part of all of that. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of hubbub on the news uh, about all that. You know, we say, well, what can we do about something like this? Let me give you something practical you can do. If you're outraged by this, if uh, you feel like uh, the idea of firebombing uh, the the opposition is wrong, uh, then I would encourage you just go online and look up the Wisconsin Family Action Center. Uh, it's WIFamilyAction.org and uh, make a small donation to them. Uh, they've got to uh, pick up the pieces and clean up the mess and get back uh, online again as far as this uh, very vital ministry. If you want that to hit closer to home, I would really encourage you to look up Hands of Hope here in Tucson and uh, make a donation to them and the great work that they're doing of caring for women throughout the whole process of uh, an unplanned pregnancy that has taken place. Uh, so, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, we're outraged about all this. It's quite another thing to uh, get involved. And if you want to get involved, volunteering time, uh, contact Hands of Hope. They've got plenty of opportunities for you to be able to get involved, volunteering your time to a very, very worthy cause. Uh, let's not just love, as the scripture says, in word or in tongue. Let's do it in, in deed and in truth, especially when all these crazy things are going on. So lots going on there. Uh, we were off the air two days, so I had a lot of uh, prophecy update back up there to get through. Three days. But, <laughs> so, uh, who's counting? Uh, yeah. Here's a fun username on YouTube. Fact check these hands wants to know. Uh, <laughs> would it be permissible for the Jews to sacrifice a red heifer that was genetically engineered, or must the heifer be born naturally? Uh, regarding the, I guess, semantics of modern genetics, the earliest example, you look in the book of Genesis and note that Jacob was told by God how to make uh, the animals from Laban's flock come out a certain way and thus increase his own. He changed his wages seven times and that is, I think, as close as you get to ancient world genetics. Nothing about the heifer is told to us regarding a prohibition of that because all we're told is how it comes out and how it's treated. You can read this in Numbers 19. But all we're told is that the animal is to be 100% red, meaning just in its youthful. It's not going to turn black in any way. And it's also not supposed to have any yoke put upon it. Those are circumstances circumstances after its birth, not before. Uh, But as far as the purpose of the heifer, it's essentially the origin of the term holy water, believe it or not, because they would use its ashes, mix it in with waters used for cleansing, specifically for those who came in contact with dead bodies and wanted to worship in the temple again. It was meant to be this sort of bathing ritual. Obviously, they didn't mix a whole dead animal into it. It was just a sprinkle, but it was meant to dedicate these things to God beginning with a sacrifice. The other thing the heifer was supposed to do was its blood was used to dedicate every new tabernacle location or even the temple when it was built by King Solomon. Right. So if they want to rebuild the temple, obviously that's why the heifer is being brought up. A heifer is just a young cow. But uh, when we're talking yeah. about this uh, creature being supposedly genetically engineered, obviously it raises people's eyebrows because if the Antichrist is going to come on the scene and defile the temple, there has to be one. This is it has kind to be of, without defect. Yeah, yeah. This, these would be one of the three steps before any of that were to be getting started. But uh, as far as any, any prohibition about the heifer being 
genetically engineered or not. I'm sure there's a Talmudic or Midrashic writing uh, discussing that somewhere, but I don't. They have... discuss everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. Uh, like even the circumstances around uh, time zone alterations on how you observe the Sabbath if you're in a jet plane. It's it's a trip. Yeah. But uh, as far as genetic endowments, as far as uh, prohibitions therein, I would just stick to Numbers chapter 19, and it's only describing prohibitions regarding the animal as a sacrifice not being used for anything apart from the sacrifice, and of course, not being anything more or less than a red heifer. That's all we're told, so I'd say that's all we should stick to. Yeah. The Jews want to, uh, I guess, go into heated debate about the secondary issues. You can talk to them about it, but we would just stick to their primary text. Yeah, much like Christians, whenever you get to two rabbis in uh, one room, you end up having three opinions on a subject. So, um, Hey, here's an interesting question uh, coming to us from across the pond. Mike uh, joining us in the early morning hours there in Great Britain. Uh, great to have you with us, Mike. He said, uh, how do you know the difference between Satan attacking you and things just going wrong in life because we live in a fallen world? How can you discern the difference on that? Well, I guess the question is, do you have to? Because the solution's the same. Yeah. So what is the solution? Now, let, let's, let's, let's do it, for instance. You know, you have one of those bad days that just seems to get worse. And it almost seems like it's personal. You know, it's just really hitting your, your hot buttons. How do you know if the wicked one's behind it or if it's just bad luck? And like you say... The secret is it really doesn't matter. What's the response when we feel like we're being put upon and kind of uh, being rode hard, so to speak? Yeah, because, I mean, I can do any sort of things focusing on myself and saying, well, maybe I'm being judged for an area of sin in my life because that's a constant. Well, maybe I can say, oh, well, this is just the way things go in this world. In this world, you have tribulation, so I better just, you know, uh, pull up my bootstraps and deal with it like a man and not really seek any productive solution to the issue or i could even go as so far as to say well uh, i guess i'm just not given the sort of assurance by god for the the kind of life i want to live and blame him for it all those things are what focusing on my circumstances or focusing on me they're not focusing on him if i want to do something productive with pain i think the first and most significant thing to do is ask if you want to know why something's happening, it's probably not going to give you the answer you want, as you oftentimes make your point in your messages. Right. But if, on the other hand, you'd say, what? What can I do in the midst of these circumstances? God's Word has a few recommendations. First of all, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. If the enemy is the one uh, pestering you, First Peter chapter 5 knows the solution to spiritual warfare is proximity to Jesus. If things are just going wrong in this world, then proximity to Jesus also wouldn't hurt either. Either, because noting, Jesus also said, in this world you will have tribulations. Yeah. He doesn't specify it's from the enemy, but he says, and I believe it's the end of John chapter 14, fear not, I have overcome the world. If he is the one who can overcome the world, and I'm presently demonstrating I'm not overcoming the world, I'm being overcome by it, he then would be your most viable solution. Uh, Mike, you and I are kindred spirits in that we can overthink ourselves into the abyss and back, but if it ultimately is going to be a productive response to trials, to temptations, and even to outright failures, if it starts and ends with Jesus, I'd say you're on the right track. Yeah, and uh, the thing that I'd, I'd really emphasize, I think that's a great answer, the thing I really emphasize and I've learned over time is this. When Satan attacks us, um, you know, can it happen? He launched an attack on us and something happens to us physically. Well, Job seems to indicate that that could be the case. For Second Corinthians 12, 
the Apostle Paul talks about uh, having a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Uh, so, yeah, it's possible that uh, these kind of attacks do have a, uh, a demonic or a, a wicked source. But the, the main way that Satan really gets his job done in us isn't necessarily through an uncomfortable or painful or frustrating set of circumstances. It's if he can get our eyes off of God and his word. Uh, how do we overcome the wicked one? Well, uh, what is the victory that overcomes the world? First John tells us our faith. Uh, that is to say, okay, uh, even if this is a messenger of Satan to buffet me, so to speak. Uh, it's interesting. The apostle Paul said three times he asked God to take this affliction away. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Boy, you really want to drive the wicked one crazy, you know, when you feel like, oh, man, you know, that the, the heat is on and I'm in the midst of this battle. couple things. Number one, the only time you catch flack in this world is when you're over the target. Satan doesn't waste his ammo. Uh, the reason he's coming after you is because he wants to nullify your effectiveness. So be encouraged. You must be doing something right. Secondly, when we find ourselves in that set of circumstances, realize we have a great opportunity, classic opportunity, to be able to deepen our understanding and our joy and our delight in the Word of God. I think about one of the, the greatest trial circumstances I ever went through in my life. Uh, just, I went through a time where I literally lost everything. And uh, the, the wonderful thing that came out of that was uh, even though uh, I love the Book of Romans, uh, I even wrote my master's thesis on a section of the Book of Romans, uh, it was going through that difficult time and discovering firsthand that I wasn't in the kingdom of God because I was a credit to it, but only because of the Lord's grace and mercy. That that word grace that I could write on a whiteboard and in the Greek and tell you what its roots were and, and so on and break it down theologically for you, it was then that that really became life to me. And, uh, and so, you know, I think what the wicked one intended for evil, God always intends for good, if we'll look for it. So faith in the Lord, Keep the communication lines open with God, prayer, Bible study, fellowship with other believers. Uh, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rails against all wise judgment. Proverbs 18.1 says, uh, you don't want to isolate. Stay involved, but stay in the word and stay in prayer and realize that uh, God is allowing this for a positive end within our life. Might be uncomfortable. Might not be something we would ever ask for, but uh, when it's all said and done, boy, I look back on that and I just say, wow, bless you, Lord, for taking me through that time. I couldn't have learned the lessons I learned there any other way. And then I guess as a good follow through, Mac wants to know, how do you know if you're born again? And this is an interesting premise. I still battle the same temptations I did when I was younger. Well, the good news is, Mac... Being born again doesn't mean you no longer struggle or even fall to temptations. Or even struggle in the in different ways. Yeah, in yeah. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and I believe verse 36, an interesting, I guess, uh, ultimatum is given. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In the same book, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus was, um, this was at the famous, famous excuse me, feeding of the 5,000, a lot of F's in that sentence, where he was asked, you know, 
how will we um, have this bread from heaven? And Jesus said, I am the bread from heaven. That whole conversation right. is the direction it went. Well, they asked, give us this bread always. And he who does the works of God has that. And he says, well, how will we work the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God. Singular. Believe yeah. in him whom you have he has sent. In the gospel, or not the gospel, in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, it's fairly straightforward. If you believe Jesus is Lord, <laughs> and that God has raised him from the dead, how he proved it, that you will be saved. Right. With the heart one believes in his salvation, and with the mouth one confesses unto repentance, on and on it goes. Yeah. But it's all a matter of acknowledging these core truths, and a life that lives in light of that is something we leave up to the Holy Spirit. Like we were talking about earlier in regards to uh, Mike, it's really key not to confuse sanctification with salvation or the lack thereof as inversive. And what I mean by that, speaking in plain English, is if I'm not as righteous as I ought to be, notice I is the focus of that sentence. If on the other hand, you're patient and say, you know what, God, I'm struggling in this area right now. I don't see your strength, your mercy, your power, the victories that you've given me against other areas of sin in my life as prominent as I do see them in my life now. You can all, I'm sure, listening, point to areas in your life where you're like, you know, I really ought to be through this, but I'm not. What's going yeah. on here? Yeah. And you're either left saying, maybe I'm not saved and God's power just isn't being demonstrated in my life anymore because he's simply not there. Or you side with the Bible and say, okay, God, here I am. Where are you? Where can you do a work in my life? Because, frankly, we live in this information superhighway generation where we freak out if the loading time of a decision or an action takes more than two seconds. If, on the other hand, we see the work that God had to do in the lives of people who were used incredibly throughout history, it not only took an average time of years, if not decades, for some of their sin to be sorted out, but oftentimes it never really was. It didn't make them any less righteous. It just meant they had a lot more things to deal with in their right. life that kept yeah. them from enjoying God the way they ought to. Yeah. When it comes to our struggle against the flesh, it's couldn't be less relevant to our salvation, but it certainly does prevent us from enjoying it. That's the difference. If, on the other hand, you want to, uh, I guess, avoid the equal and opposite mistake people make of, oh, I sinned once, I've lost my salvation, as opposed to, oh, I'm saved, therefore I'll sin up a storm, obviously we go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? So what's the balancing point? It's saying, okay, God, here's my sin. If you confess your sin and forsake it, you'll find mercy. But you hides his sin will be condemned. That's in the Proverbs. Right. It's built even further on the grace of Christ in First John chapter 1 and verses 9 through 10. I want to, to commit to memory because it is that big of a deal. Going yeah. part back to verse 8 as well, where you say, okay, if I say I have no sin, I make him a liar and the truth's not in me. If I confess my sin, notice the sin that is in fact still there, see Romans 7, then I, he, not me, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse right. us from all unrighteousness. But if I say I have not sinned, make him a liar's words not in us. So here's the point. If I keep in mind what God has said about dealing with my sin, then I can keep in check what my heart says about me and my sin. If I sin, I bring it to Jesus. If I'm righteous, I'm thanking Jesus. 
And sometimes that's the greatest benefit we have of times where we're seeing just how far our flesh can bring us. If on the other hand we'd say, oh man, I, I've achieved sinless perfection. Well, A, you make God a liar. B, that's not scriptural. And C, yeah, that's weird. You're not paying attention. <laughs> yeah, that's very, that's very proudful of you. But if on the other hand, I intentionally said that. But if on the other hand you would make the point and saying, you know, I remember the times where I was struggling with this in complete and total bondage. I couldn't make it one day without falling to this. And I was just at the feet of Jesus, thankful for his mercy. But now I've moved beyond that. I don't have to spend any time with Jesus. I'm just completely free from my sin. Well, guess what just happened there? You replaced one sin of the flesh with a corrosion of the soul known as pride. It would be better for us in our relationship with God to fall to our sin every single day, and I say that without controversy, and still be in an abiding relationship with Jesus on the basis of mercy than for God to completely free us from all sin and leave us to corrode ourselves from within. So the point being made is this, um, Mac, when it comes to dealing with temptations, understand that's not what saves you, the presence or lack thereof. What saves you is the acknowledgement of the fact that God not only was, but proved who he was in a moment of history and did so for you. If you are daily along with your sin, bringing that before him and thanking him for the forgiveness therein, then you have pretty much the same I guess, standing before him as you or I have. When it comes to salvation, it's not a matter of us being good enough. It's being made good enough. And sometimes that means waiting. Sometimes that means letting God finish the work that he's started in your life until it's over. And that's not going to be an immediate process. When you fall, get back up. When you mess up, seek confession, seek accountability, seek productive solutions. But don't think that you're saved because of what you don't do any more than you're no longer saved because of what you still do or even want to do because Paul said in Romans 7 that he still feels even (laughs) after seeing the resurrected Christ spending three years having been able to interview the eyewitnesses themselves being able to perform miracles and going on all these missionary journeys he describes his sinful state as being a war in his heart and mind knowing what to do that is good but still doing what is evil story of our lives but if on the other hand he notes and comes to this conclusion the same one we need to do who will deliver me from this body of death i thank god through christ jesus our lord mac if you're not depending on mercy you are more lost than me but if you're anything like me every day we're coming to him on the basis of mercy whether it's in the obvious sins or not right right all right uh anything more to correct there uh, no, no, no correction there. It was awesome. All right. Fact, uh, fact check these hands wants to know. I just love saying that username. Uh, before the white throne judgment. I, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah. He spelt throne F uh, uh, T H R O U N. I've got a funny visual image from that. Anyway, uh, where are the unsaved souls kept? So before the white throne judgment, where are those who have not come to relationship with God? Before final judgment, obviously they're not with Christ. That's a definitive decision. Right. Where are those who have rejected a relationship with God currently and presently being held until that day of judgment? Yeah, I think uh, the best answer to that, uh, fact check these hands, uh, is is, uh, found in the book of Luke chapter 16, the uh, account of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I call it the account. Some people call it a parable, but I don't believe it's a parable at all because uh, when Jesus was going to teach parables, he was very good about letting us know that a parable was going to be forthcoming. He would say, here the parable of the sower, or the kingdom of heaven is like. This one he just launches in. Uh, The other thing that makes it uh, unique and distinctive from any other parable, uh, if you want to use that term, another, uh, that Jesus taught is that proper names are used in this. He never uses proper names in any other parable. In this one, we've got at least two and perhaps three 
so uh, the accounts here, here says in Luke sixteen nineteen, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So as the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, this tells us something about the disposition of the dead uh, before the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. At, at that time, the Old Testament talked about one place of the dead. It was called Sheol or the grave. Well, according to this particular passage and some other Old Testament passages we could point you to, uh, the grave or Sheol was a dual compartment situation. And what I mean by that was there was a place for the righteous called Abraham's bosom or right at Abraham's side is the picture there. And then there was a chasm in between. And then there was a place called torments or Hades where the unrighteous would go. Now, notice in both cases, the righteous and the unrighteous are immediately aware of their destination after death. There's no soul sleep to be found in any of this. Well, you know, again, why do we have this dual compartment situation? Why did the righteous have to go to this same place in the grave and Sheol and the lowest parts of the earth? Well, because Jesus hadn't paid the price for our sins yet. In the fullness of time, he paid the price for our sins, not only our sins, but all sins that have been committed, past, present, and future. Old Testament saints were saved looking forward to when Jesus would pay the price for our sins. And so in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, we are told that uh, when Jesus uh, rose on high, he led captivity captive. And Paul goes on and offers the comment, what does this he rose on high uh, mean aside from the fact that he was also in the lowest, mo lowermost parts of the earth? Uh, there is evidence to suggest that what Jesus did in the three days uh, following his death, he wasn't suffering in, in hell with the devil poke, poking at him and, and so on. Uh, he was, in essence, preaching a message. First uh, Peter chapter 3 says that he preached to the spirits who were in prison, declaring to those who put their faith in him the greatest message they could ever hear. Their sin had been paid for. It had not just been covered by sacrifice or in anticipation of what the Messiah would do. It had been removed. From that time onward, they could go directly into the holy presence of God and enjoy him forever. Now, those who were in the other compartment, well, that other compartment, it does seem, is still doing land office business. When people die without Christ, it isn't as if they lose consciousness. Uh, in essence, they uh, find themselves in this place, uh, and it's described as being a place of torment. It's uh, described as being a place uh, where uh, individuals are aware of their previous life and their attachments there. They're aware of the fact that they chose wrongly as far as a relationship with God is concerned. Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, rich man uh, says to Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. They may dip the f his finger in, in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. Now, understands that this isn't the final destination of the unrighteous dead. It's sort of a waiting room, if you will, because they are going to get their day in court at the event called the Great White Throne Judgment, described in Revelation chapter 20. 
At that point, books will be opened. And if you've ever run into somebody who says, yeah, I I think I'm going to go to heaven. I'm a pretty good person. They're going to get an opportunity at that particular event to be able to see just how good a person they really were, not only in what they did, but what they thought, how they felt, the the whole shooting match. Uh, By the works of the law, by trying to be good enough, no flesh will be justified. But God is so just, he will give each person the opportunity to be able to see their life and to see exactly what they accepted and what they rejected at that particular time. Uh, Everyone whose name wasn't found in the book of life, uh, we are told at that point after that judgment, is going to follow Satan and the Antichrist, the false prophet, into the lake of fire and spend eternity separated from God. People ask, do you think that's a literal lake of fire? Um, You know, you kind of hope so, because if it's symbolic, a symbol is something we can't understand that points to a greater reality that we can't understand. But suffice it to say, uh, those who die without Christ will have exactly what they wanted. It's going to be an eternity without God and all that goes with it. All of God's good and perfect gifts, everything that we enjoy in life, even freedom from pain, uh, are going to be removed at that point. Yeah. And then to finish up, two questions from Nina. First one is regarding whether or not we should come to conclusions on people who aren't as vocal uh, against issues like abortion among Christian circles and so forth. I think it's very foolish to judge someone on what they haven't said or how quickly they say something about it. Focus on what they have said, and if they have changed their position, I'm sure they'll let you know. If, On the other hand, though, what about the things people have said? If there's, uh, say, for example, she names a teacher. I won't mention his name because it's not relevant. But how to respond to bad teaching? Again, we are blessed in this nation to have access to other teachings. If you're not ministered to by them, then you can either pray he'll be shown the same mercy and grow out of those teachings as they are led by the Spirit into all truth, or that you aren't going down with the ship as they continue to go forward further and further away from God's heart. I think that's the wisest place to leave it. Yeah. Well, there comes the music. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow for more of your questions on God's Word. Join us tonight for a continuing study in the book of Revelation. We'll be on about a half an hour. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.